I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Mike Wilner, baseball columnist for Canada's biggest newspaper, the Toronto Star, covering our beloved Toronto Blue Jays. Mike dominates multiple media platforms, giving his thoughts and opinions in the Star newspaper, on their website and app, on his podcast, Deep Left Field, and via social media, in particular on Twitter. He both lives and loves to interact with his fans, they're as, pa- as passionate as he is about baseball and the Toronto Blue Jays. Welcome, Mike Wellner, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Um, first of all, thank you for having me. It's, it's my pleasure to join you. Where am I? I'm, I'm at the home office um, in, uh, in the West End, and I'm doing okay. Thank you. Excellent. Well, spring is here. The Jays have kicked things off and so far are looking good and as expected. The Raptors are unexpectedly in the playoffs. And of course, we have all the angst about who the Maple Leafs are going to face in their first round matchup in a few weeks. But overall, it's great to be a Torontonian right now. How are you feeling? As far as Toronto sports go, I'm sort of embedded uh, uh, Blue Jayically at the moment, but, but I'm keeping an eye on, on things. It would be nice uh, for the Raptors to have a nice little playoff run for the for the Maple Leafs to get out of the first round, um, it's you know whenever whenever things are going well in Toronto sports, there's more interest in general in the in the overall. So that's uh, and that's and that's great. I mean, look, remember the early '90s when the Blue Jays were winning World Series and the Leafs were going to the Final Four in back to back years. The Argos had just won a Grey Cup. Um, there's a, you know, there's a great feeling in this city when, when things are going well sports-wise. It's fantastic, and hopefully we're in another golden era again. Let's jump right into the Mike Wilner origin story, if I may. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where were you born, and please describe your upbringing. I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital. Mount Sinai. Uh, on University Avenue. I believe the new Mount Sinai, which is the current one, but it might've been the old one, which is princess Margaret now, I believe. Yes. Um, But I think it was the new one, but anyway, uh, that's, that's where I was born, Uh, grew up in Toronto, have lived in Toronto for basically my entire life. Um, Grew up sort of in Bathurst Manor and then Bathurst and Steeles. Um, and and my upbringing was, I guess, of the the a typical typical Toronto Jewish upbringing. Um, what synagogue maybe, were you at? Maybe not typical. Uh, there were a few. My parents split up when I was young, so uh, there was there was some time at Beth David, which is uh, sort of in the manor around uh, Bathurst and Shepherd. Um, there was some time. At uh, my bar mitzvah was at Beth Shalom, which is at Eglinton and the Allen. Um, and my mom sang in the choir at Beth Tikva a little bit on Bayview, north of Shepherd. Uh, so I've, I've I've hit most of them. <laughs> and uh, did you do the summer camp uh, 
circuit? I, I did, didn't do the circuit. Um, I, when I was nine, um, I went to Camp White Pine, and uh, that's actually, I went the summer after Meatballs was filmed there, um, that great Bill Murray uh, movie. Um, and, and I remember uh, a big trip that we all went to, the one movie theater in Halliburton yeah. to see Meatballs, and everyone was really excited because they had remembered being there the summer before, and the movie being filmed there, and, and uh, I, I was not. Um, I really fit in well, <clears throat> pardon me, at White Pine. Uh, it wasn't a great experience for me. I was only there because my mother um, was working there as, as their arts and crafts person. She's, mm-hmm. She was a teacher and, and a big camp person. Um, so, yeah, White Pine was really not for me. Um, and then the next... Three summers, I went to Camp Gesher, which is what's referred to, I think, in the in the Jewish community as one of the more schmutzy camps, mm-hmm. uh, one, one of the down and dirty um, kibbutz style camps as opposed to resort style camps, which White Pine is. Um, I, I, you know, it was all right. Didn't love it either. I wasn't, I wasn't really a camp guy, which disappointed both my parents because they were huge camp people. Um, and they, um, you know, Toronto legends. I mean, we're getting kind of Jewy here, but um, the, the, the legendary Camp Kvutza, which was on Lake Erie, um, near Port Dover, but I'm not sure what, what town they, they claimed the camp was in, um, in the fifties and sixties. Um, so many of the people of my parents' generation went to Camp Kutza, um, and they, my parents actually met there. Mm-hmm. So they, they were big, big, big camp people. I was not. It, it, I did the uh, tour myself. I did Northland Bene Breath. That was okay, but it wasn't as meaningful to me as it was. To, I got a brother and sister who got tremendous amount more out of it. But I enjoyed the chance, and certainly as you speak, it may be a generational thing. It was certainly at a certain time. Everyone did it, and uh, yeah. I'm glad for the experience. Not only, yeah, I learned to water ski. Never had a chance since. So. <laughs> where'd you go to junior high, and where'd you go to high school, Mike? I um, I was in the the day school um, system, the the uh, the the Jewish day school system here. So I went to Bialik mm-hmm. um, from like nursery school, three years old. To grade nine, I graduated there in grade. I was one of the last grade nine classes they had. My my grade nine year, which was 84, 85, was the first year that high school started to incorporate grade nine. Um, and I was the first OAC class. And that's yes. gone now, but people of a certain vintage will remember, right? You you, uh, there was no grade 13. You just needed three OAC, uh, six OAC credits, Ontario academic credits, um, they were called. So I, I graduated high school um, at 18 with half of my class. The other half stayed for another half year or full year. Um, and I graduated with the entire grade 13 class of, of kids who were a year older than me. Um, I went to, to chat community Hebrew Academy of Toronto, 
uh, over at Wilmington and Overbrook. Um, yeah, so I was in I was in the day school system from start to to finish. Um, it was it was interesting. Uh, I took a I took um, in in order to graduate. When I did, I had to squeeze in a couple of extra credits. So I went to, I took a night school course um, in at Earl Hague, and I took um, grade 12 English the summer before I went into grade 12 at mm-hmm. Newtonbrook. So I hit up a couple of the public schools in my day, but not uh, not during the time where it was a real public school experience. It's scholastic exposure you had. And then finishing high school, you went to U of T. What campus yeah. were you at? Downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, uh, I was in New College, and uh, I spent six years getting a four-year degree <laughs> at uh, the University of Toronto. I was in no rush. <laughs> what degree? Uh, I have a a bachelor of science in psychology and ethics, society, and law. Hmm. Um, and it's a bachelor of science only because it sounds better. I think than a bachelor of arts, I remember going into the registrar's office uh, a few months before I was graduating because psych was one of my majors and psych is a science mm-hmm. ethics, society, and law was the other one. And that's uh, under the, you know, arts, um, so I said to them, I have these two majors. Do I get a Bachelor of Arts or do I get a Bachelor of Science? And the registrar said to me, which one do you want? Nice. Uh, okay, <laughs> science sounds better. Give me the science. Done. So uh, I have a Bachelor of Science with honors from the University of Toronto. Fantastic. And while you were at school at U of T, Mike, any interesting summer jobs? What did you do in your summers of your six-year Well, the the most interesting summer job was in the the summer after my first year in 1989, where I was uh, doing play-by-play for the Welland Pirates of the the New York Penn League, which I don't think exists anymore. Um, With all the changes to the minor league system that happened a couple of years ago, um, there used to be this vibrant minor league professional baseball in the the golden horseshoe where um, Welland had a team that was affiliated with the Pittsburgh Pirates, Uh, Tim Wakefield, who wound up having a wonderful major league career as a knuckleball pitcher uh, was at the third baseman for the team Mm. prior, but you know, he, he threw his first knuckleball in the pros in front of me, which was very cool. Um, But Welland had a team, St. Catharines had the blue Jays affiliate Niagara Falls, New York had a team Hamilton had the Redbirds, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals affiliate. All those teams are gone now. But back in the, the late 80s and early 90s, uh, it was it was phenomenal. And I was lucky enough uh, that that was a, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it summer job. I didn't get paid. Uh, yeah. It was a volunteer gig. But uh, that was that was my first experience broadcasting baseball. Was in but how did you even get that, Mike? Well, when I was at U of T, I thought it would be fun to work for the radio station. It, it just was um, on a whim. There was no plan to do it. Um, there, U of T had, the, as part of uh, Frosh Week, they had this club day where um, the, the main lobby of 
Sydney Smith Hall, which is the, um, or was, I, I don't know if it still is, 35 years later, uh, the hub of the arts and sciences department um, that was, uh, there were a bunch of little booths and kiosks with all these clubs, academic and recreational and whatever. Uh, and you went in there and you, you, you sort of looked for what's something that catches your eye. Well, what would you want to do outside of school? Um, and the radio station was there. And so I went and I talked to them and I thought, oh, this would be cool to, you know, read the sports for a radio station. Um, and Tim Haffey, who later went on to work at the fan 1430, um, and I believe the score, um, did some stuff for TSN. He was the sports director at the time of, of CIUT, which is the UT radio station, 89.5 on your FM dial, 50,000 watts of power buried at Buffalo Kitchener to Coburg. Nice. Um, so yeah, I, I, I wound up doing morning sports after the newscasts three days a week at like nine, 10, 11, and 12. Uh, I remember that the first sports cast for them I ever did. And the first story I ever did was um, Ben Johnson giving his gold medal back. Wow. Talk about into the fire for your career. That was, uh, that was something. Um, So that was like mid September, 1988. Um, and through the radio station, I got a chance to do a couple of hockey games for them. Um, and I thought, you know, baseball is my first love, and I would love to try calling a baseball game. And there, there was no internet back then, so you nope. couldn't just, you know, find things at the, the snap of your fingers. Uh, so I went and I found the... New York Penn League directory. Um, it was a short season league. I had to do a short season league because I was in school, so I couldn't yeah. try to do one that started in April. Um, and I wasn't flush with dough or anything, so it had to be close. Um, so I called all the teams in the New York Penn League and the well and pirates got back to me and they said, send us a tape. We're doing a radio. We're doing like 30 games. I think out of their 72 game season, we could use a volunteer to be in the second chair, uh, send them a tape. So at my grandparents' house, I just called a couple of innings of a blue Jays game off the TV, mailed them the tape and they liked it enough to, to give me the shot. This tape was VHS or beta. This was a, a, a cassette. Wow. This was a Memorex. There you, you know, go. It, just, it was audio only, yeah. In your boombox. That's right. <laughs> well, let this be a public service announcement, Mike. My, my kid's 15. She's in high school. Go to your club week, whether it's high school or university. Isn't that incredible? That's how your whole story started. You Seriously, showing interest I mean, in I, something. That I had no idea that I might have uh, enjoyed prior to it. Uh, yeah, otherwise, you know, if, if that – Club week doesn't happen. I'm probably like an accountant or a lawyer right now. <laughs> and and your parents would be happy, but yeah. They're probably making more money too. <laughs> so Mike, when you go through university, you're now done. You've got your bachelor's science. What happens? With when you- honors. 
with honors, let that you. be noted for the record. And you're now done at school. Where do you go from here? Well, um, when I graduated in May of 94, I had been um, waitering um, to make money. Uh, so I was I was on my third stint at the Pickle Barrel at uh, Leslie the atrium. No, the atrium on Bay. Leslie oh. Cummer, I never worked at. I worked at okay. the atrium. I worked at Promenade. Uh, I went to the Leslie one a few, more a few times. Yeah, but uh, so I was on my third stint, having been already fired twice by them and, and rehired <laughs> twice. Um, and I was looking for, um, they were cutting back hours at the pickle barrel. So I, I was looking, not knowing quite what I was going to do. Um, I had written the LSATs a couple of years before, done very, very well on them and, and, gotten some like small law schools in the States interested in trying to recruit me, um, but not give me any money, just get me to go there. Um, so I was sort of considering that I was, um, I was working for the university of Toronto department of athletics and recreation, which okay. doesn't exist anymore. It's now just called phys ed. Um, but I, I was the, um, public address announcer at U of T hockey and football and volleyball and basketball regularly. I also did some water polo once that was interesting. Um, but I really enjoyed that. And I wanted to try to do something in radio. Um, in 1993, I interned at the fan for a month. Um, in the summer and well, all through my time at CIUT, I was going down to the X and the, the dome and covering the J's and um, leaf practices. And, and, you know, there were no Raptors yet, um, but I really wanted to, to give radio a shot. And I wound up getting, um, getting a job, closer to home, a waitering job closer to home. I was living at Bathurst and Steeles at the time. And I, I got a job at Lime Rickey's right after graduation. Uh, the late lamented Lime Rickey's, which was yes. on, uh, on Steeles just west of Young, where I wound up meeting my wife. She, she hired me, as it turned out, my now ex-wife, but we were together for like 20 years. Um, so I'm working at Lime Rickey's. And so I had to cut back my hours to pickle barrel downtown. So they fired me again for a third time. Um, and 680 News started up. Okay. It had been CFTR, the, you know, the wonderful music station. And, and they decided to change to an all news format. I think in 94, might've been 93. Um, and I sent in a tape and I said, you know, this is, who I am and what I've done. And I sent it to John Hinnon, who at the time was the program director at 680 news and heard, never heard back. Um, so I kept doing the U of T stuff and I was waitering 
and um, the legendary Paul Carson, who was the sports information director at University of Toronto for years and years and years and years. Um, part of his job was, and again, I'm, you know, you have to get in the wayback machine for this when there yep. was no internet. And, and, you know, so part of the deal was that he had to actually call after every game, wire services, newspapers, radio stations, TV stations, just to tell them the score of the game. He had to call them. He had to call them. Because, I mean, university sports in, in Toronto gets no attention at all. It continues right. to get no attention at all, right? I used to True. do uh, guess the attendance uh, quizzes because I could do a head count. <laughs> um, so at, at some point in the fall of 94, Paul Carson decided he didn't want to do that anymore. And he was going to make it the job, my job, to do that okay. uh, as, you know, part of the $20 a game that I was getting. <laughs> Um, so I did, and I called all the people that I called. And when I called the fan to tell them the score of this U of T basketball game, Tim Haffey answered the phone. Okay. And he was the guy who had, uh, hired me at CIUT. And he said, okay, do you want to leave me 30 seconds about the game? And I said, sure. So I did a little 30-second report for him, and it was on the fan on the air that day, and I felt like this incredible uh, sense of accomplishment having having gotten on the, the air on the yep. radio station. The next week, I did the same thing. And when I called 680, I said, hey, do you want 30 seconds? I never thought that this would be a possible thing, right? Yeah. And I have no idea who answered the phone. I have no idea who, uh, who the woman was who I spoke to. She said, sure. She took it. Um, and two days later, I got a call from Paul Carson, who said, Peter Gross just called me. He's a sports director at 680. He wanted to know who this was, who left this 30-second report, and could he talk to him, and could he meet him? I was like, oh, that's awesome. Um and realized that the mistake I made in sending the application to 680 was sending it to Hinnon, who was the overall guy, and not to Gross, who was the sports guy. Okay. Um, but I talked to Gross. He said he thought it was great, and he, he really liked the way I sounded. And, and um, would I come in and write a sports cast, an audition sports cast for him? Okay. And I, I was like, yeah. When, it, when and where? Right. And it was like that week. Um, I came in early morning because he was the morning guy. Um, and he said, okay, here are, here's the newspaper. Cause again, right. No internet. Um, here's what happened last night. Write a three minute sports cast and record it here in, in this booth. Okay. And this is, you know, this is what I had been doing at U of T for years. Right. Yeah. So so I knew this really, really well. So I, I wrote a sports cast probably in about 10 or 15 minutes um, and recorded it. And he was there and there was a, a technician there to, to record it. 
in the booth for him. And it was three minutes and it was whatever it was. I don't remember, but, uh, but I do remember that after I was done, I turned to gross and he had a big smile on his face and he said, um, he's wanted me to know that the engineer, um, was sitting there with her jaw dropped the entire time, which made me feel really good. Um, and I said something like, well, thank, you know, thank you. And, and, uh, he said he, he thought it was great. And if he had a job, he would hire me right uh, on the spot. Okay. Which was awesome, but he didn't, which wasn't <laughs> awesome. But he said he would keep me in mind. And as soon as there was an opening, he would let me know. And okay. All of that. And, you know, it was, it wasn't, don't call us, we'll call you. Yeah. He was very excited and, and, uh, and sincere, really genuine and sincere. Absolutely. Um, so I felt good, but also felt like, well, all right, so I'm just going to go back to Lime Ricky's now and, and yeah. um, you know, think about law school and, and all that stuff. But I still really wanted to to give broadcasting a real shot. And it should be noted um, that I did have the privilege in my mid-20s after university of living at home, not paying rent, not having to worry about car payments or, or any of that stuff. So I could afford to take this chance, mm-hmm. right? Um, I could afford to wait tables and try to find you know, do U of T games for 40 bucks a weekend um, and still survive, easily survive. Never had to worry about where I was going to sleep, paying rent, how I was going to eat, any, anything like that. So it's, it's an incredible privilege that I think a lot of people at the time just didn't realize. It was mm-hmm. just, you know, life. Um, Gave you time to get your legs under you. Absolutely. Ab- without question. Um, with no pressure. At all. There was no pressure from my parents to, hey, you got to do something or, you know, um, they saw that I wanted to do this and they were willing to to help. Um, So that anyway, that winter, 94. There was the big baseball strike uh, and things were terrible and no World Series and and all of that. I had stopped working at U at CIUT after 1991 because there was a um, a coup at the radio station oh where yeah it was there, the the politics of that radio station were unbelievable but uh, it was always it was a constant battle between the university radio side and the community radio side okay um, it was. You know, as much as it was the university radio station, it was community radio. Um, there was a, a I, I had a half hour sports show twice a week at noon, um, and I was followed one day by anarchists, um, and I kept making fun of them. And I, you know, Uh-oh. as I said, you know, if you were really anarchists. You were devoted to the cause, and you wouldn't have a show from twelve thirty to one. It would not be scheduled. Whenever the hell you wanted, that's right. Go as long as you wanted. Finish whenever you wanted. Um, There was a a 
there was a show that followed me, I think it might've been in the afternoon called by all means, which was a very militant, um, I think communist, uh, show. Um, so there were some, there was a lot of stuff on that radio station that had absolutely nothing to do with the university. And they, they really, really didn't like sports. They really mm-hmm. didn't like the uh, culture of sports. Mm-hmm. They didn't like a lot of the things about sports. They actually sabotaged a live hockey broadcast at one point of mine, uh, cut the wires. It was really weird. And then at some point they, they like overthrew the program director and, and took over and got rid of the sports department. So uh, the, the, I mean, we're all volunteers. It wasn't like job losses or anything, but the whole sports department got cleaned out, which is why I started to do stuff for uh, the DAR, the, the Department of Athletics and Recreation. So, um, so I hadn't done any, you know, covered any professional sports since 91. Um, so I missed 92 and 93 with the Jays. Yep. Um, and then 94 happened and the major leagues were shut down, but the winter meetings were still going on. Because a lot of the winter meetings is like a minor league production um, and for the benefit of minor league teams. And for the first time in December of 94 at the winter meetings in Dallas, there was this thing called professional baseball employment opportunities. Okay. And I had, I have genuinely no recollection of how I even found out about it. Um, But I did. And I thought, you know, this was sort of like, hey, you want to work in, in sports, you want to work in the minor leagues, we have opportunities for broadcasters, for uh, salespeople, for groundskeepers, for everything, right? So this was this is almost like a convention for minor league jobs. And so I bought a ticket and I went to Dallas and um, this thing has grown PBEO uh, professional baseball employment opportunities has grown into this huge, huge thing where every year at the winter meetings, you see all these like 17 to 22 year olds in suits and, and uh, trying to network. And, and it's, it's fantastic and it's wonderful. Um, but back then it was very, very bare bonesy. We got, uh, there was a speech on the first night and then there was a, like a work room with job postings on it. And there were these, uh, little boards with push pins. Um, and I'm like, okay, so there's going to be a ton of broadcasting jobs and I'll be able to get a minor league gig and it's going to be great. And in the overall, there were 200 jobs, I think posted. Okay. 180 of them were for group sales people. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were three broadcasting jobs, okay. three available. Um, Two were actual play-by-play jobs, and one was pre- and post-game show host. Okay. And that was the one I got. I, I applied to all three. I got an interview with one. I got incredibly sick, like crazy, barely could get out of bed sick. Um, and this was 1995, right? So or 1994, the end of 94. So almost 30 years ago when 
I mean, maybe it still is now, hopefully not the last two years, but when, if you're sick and you got to do something, you do it. You go. Uh, right. Which hopefully has changed, but this was, uh, I wasn't going to miss this opportunity to interview for one of the three broadcasting jobs. Sure. And who was it with Mike? It was with the hardware city rock cats Out of? <laughs> of the Eastern league. Okay. Um, the, the wonderful thing about them was this was like when, when minor league teams were starting to go with these offbeat, uh, names and, and, uh, mascots and things. Um, and they had just changed their affiliation from Boston to Minnesota. So okay. for years and years and years, they had been the new Britain Red Sox, new Britain, Connecticut, which is just West of Hartford. Like it's a, a bedroom community of Hartford. Um, but they were the New Britain Red Sox. And then they switched to the Twins and became the Hardware City Rockcats. Nobody knew what the hell Hardware City was, yeah. where it was. Um, Stanley Tools is the biggest employer in New Britain. So okay. they're known as the Hardware City. But they're only known as the Hardware City in like central Connecticut, um, you know, which, which doesn't go well for um, name recognition beyond that area. Um, and nobody knows what a rock cat is. Their, their, uh, their mascot was this anthropomorphic black cat with a leather jacket and an electric guitar, uh, and an earring, which they had to change. They immediately, like after the thing was on sale for a week, they had to take the earring out. People went nuts. No earrings on our cats. <laughs> It's insane. It's like the stray um, cats. Is this some kind of connection to the rockabilly no, stray cats? Okay. Not at all. No, this so, is a hard rocking cat. This was no, there was no rockabilly, no stand up bass with this guy. Um, so, Hardware City is not a place. It is actually New Britain, Connecticut. Right. And because yeah. Stanley Tools was the big, the big employer, they yeah. were the hard, Hardware City rock cats. Correct. For one year and only one year. And then uh, because of all the confusion and like I worked there for six weeks and, and every other uh, person I ran into was what the hell is hardware city. So um, they are, they became the new Britain rock cats. They are now the Hartford yard goats. Um, and they did not great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was actually there last summer at Dunkin Donuts park in Hartford. To, uh, that was a blast to, to, it wasn't the same ballpark or anything, but the same franchise that I had worked for. Uh, it was really cool. But anyway, um, the Hardware City Rock Cats, I was uh, uh, interviewed uh, by Jim Lucas, who ran the show. He was the play-by-play guy and the producer. Um, the uh, He said he wanted a pre- and post-game host that – uh, they would have a real pregame show before every game and post game. I could do whatever I wanted do out of town scores, take calls, all this stuff. They were very excited because they were going to a new radio station. Um, the year before they had been on Insta traffic 660. Okay. Which was all traffic all the time. 24 hours a day of traffic of Hartford proposition there. Right. So they had moved to W I want to say W B E Z. 
and it's in Boston or is it was in Hartford. So it's a Z. Um, I think it was WBEZ. Uh, and they were, you remember CNN headline news, that channel? Sure. They sure. played CNN headline news 24 hours a day, <laughs> except for when they had Celtics games and Rock Cats games. Um, so I interviewed, I was sick as a dog, barely speak. Um, but I got the job based on all the radio work I'd done, based on the Welland stuff that I had done. Um, and in March of 95, I said goodbye to Lime Rickies and moved and to the your apron. Well, I was a manager at the, by then, so I didn't have an apron to turn in, but um, moved to, to New Britain and immediately we went to spring training in Fort Myers where the twins uh, and their affiliates were. And it was minor league spring training only. The major leaguers were still on, uh, on strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met uh, uh, Don Wardlow, who was the color analyst for the broadcast, okay. who is blind. Oh. Um, he and he is the you know it was a pretty big deal that he was a, a blind broadcaster. He had a braille typewriter that he kept with him, uh, took with him everywhere, and he kept score on the brailler and um, was able to be an analyst through that, even though he wow. couldn't see. Yeah, and we did like some mock broadcasts for a couple of weeks of spring training games, and. On the minor league fields, there are no, um, so barely any bleachers. So we would just literally sit at the backstop and call the games. Wow. And War- Wardlow um, sat with his back to the ball game, and huh. you know it, it didn't matter. He couldn't yeah. see anyway, but it's still it was still weird to see someone broadcasting and uh, facing the other way. But, uh, but I got to do some play-by-play in a, a couple innings, a game. And so that was a lot of fun. Um, and then we went back to Hartford. And I found out some things that I hadn't been told before. I, I was uh, going to engineer the broadcasts remotely from the studio, which I had thought that I was going to be at the ballpark with them watching the games. I had never engineered before, had no clue what I was doing. Um, so didn't love that. Not the, not necessarily the engineering part, but the not being at the game part. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I found that, um, and I guess I wasn't really expecting much, but that no one was listening. Okay. <laughs> we we uh, you know, we would open the the phone lines after the games and didn't get a single phone call over mm-hmm. over the six weeks. Uh, there was one incredible experience when um, because the Celtics games were on the radio station as well, and the Celtics were in the playoffs when our minor league season started. Um, there was, there were a couple of games that were tape delayed. Yeah. That we so we went on after the Celtics broadcast for our okay. seven o'clock game would get on the air at eleven. Um, what a lead-in! Seriously, uh, an amazing lead-in. But for one of the tape delayed games was at home, and I said to them, "Hey, um, 
since we're not on till 11, can I come to the game? And they said, yeah, come to the game. And the night before, the backup catcher had gotten hurt. And the first baseman was the backup catcher. And they didn't really have a third catcher. So uh, I was at the game doing all the pregame stuff. And Sal Butera, who later worked for the Blue Jays for decades, uh, was the manager of the Rockcats at the time. And uh, I said to Sal, you got two catchers down, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, do you need some help? And he was like, are you a catcher? And I was like, yeah. And I said, I can catch in the pen for you if you, if you need an extra glove. And he was like, um, okay. So they gave me a uniform, and I was the bullpen catcher that nice. game. I, I caught in the bullpen and broadcast the, the uh, pre- and post-game show. Um, so that was an incredible experience. I warmed up a couple of guys who got into the game, one of whom did really, really well and, and one of whom did not. Um, we almost got in a, a brawl with the, the Trenton Thunder because of a collision at first base between their base runner and our pitcher. So I, you know, I was up ready to go, ready to charge onto the field. If, if the bullpen had gone, you've been in the trenches. What are they going to do? Suspend me? Like (laughs) Exactly. But we didn't cooler heads sadly prevailed. So I didn't get to rush the field and and, uh, beat up Nomar Garcia para. Well, nobody touches Nomar. I hope you know that (laughs) this is the rarest of combinations. My catcher pregame play by play post game. I don't think anyone's pulled that off before or since. I don't think it's ever did you, happened. Did before. you keep your uniform? No, they they gave me the uniform of were you able to uh, the shortstop that they had released the day before. No, it's the minor league, so they, everything is reused and recycled <laughs> yeah. right, all the time. So it was Ramon Valetti who was released uh, the day before or a couple of days before. So I wore his uniform, um, and give then they they gave it to the next guy. Then the next no day, names on the back. Eh? It didn't say no, Valetti no, heck no. no. Mike, I'm gonna. But run so out. then, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm. I'm. I'm sorry for taking no, no, the you're, whole you're, time with this. Story. You're doing great, and I want to keep going. I, but I, I also want to pay a lot of attention to what you're currently doing. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna pause you there because we're gonna. This obviously leads into we're gonna have to have follow up episodes because the stuff you've been through on your journey. I mean, we're just getting started here. But I want to talk about what you're doing today to make sure we well, give it proper. Let me just put a little bow on the end. Good, please. Um, with the the, I really did not enjoy other than that game the New Britain experience. I didn't like sitting in a dark studio the whole time and engineering and not really you know being there. And so when Peter Gross called me in the, in the middle of May to say, "Hey, we you know someone's leaving. We've got a job. Would you like it?" I jumped at it. Sure, I was you know more than happy to to come back to Toronto. So that's how I wound up at six eighty, and I was at six eighty from 1995 until 2001 when Scott Ferguson left the fan to go to the headline sports radio network. And then uh, I got brought in and I did another fantastic Toronto story that if you want to do this again, you can ask me about the connection with Nelson Millman, who was the program director of the fan who hired me. Um, but that's how I wound up there. Well, Absolutely. I'm taking note of that one because it's going to be good. And it sounds like, so Peter Gross gets a good credit for, for Mike Wilner. 
Peter without Peter Gross, yeah, none of this happens. None of it. Um, in all your various mediums today with the star, I was curious about kind of process. We like to know how the sausage gets made at this podcast. What is the process of writing your Toronto Star columns? Like how many other people are writing on the Jays for the star? And how do you kind of decide who's going to cover what angle so that you don't uh, overwrite each other, so to speak? Well, um, Gregor Chisholm and I uh, are the, the Jays columnists at the star. Rosie DeMano is sort of a columnist at large who spends a lot of time um, with the Jays as well. Uh, Laura Armstrong is on the beat with the Jays and she's a, a wonderful feature writer and um, so it's really the four of us and it you know basically it, it gets divvied up by who's there who's on a road trip who's um, who's got something that they want to write and it's a you know it's a five day a week thing so people are off and people you know, aren't writing that day. Rosie's off doing the Leafs or covering world events and stuff. So, I mean, Gregor and I will basically, one of us will have a column in the paper every day. Mm-hmm. There, there will be times where we both do. Um, Laura will have some incredible features, uh, a, a lot on the weekend. Um, and she covers soccer uh, and some other stuff as well. Um, and does a, a fantastic job with all that. Um, so it's basically like, you know, as we sit here today, I, my editor texted me this morning because today the Blue Jays are off and said, yep. you know, you're on the schedule to write the off day story. What are you going to do? And we've gone back and forth with a couple of ideas. Okay. Um, so I'll write at some point today. I'll just sit down and, and, Pound a column out, probably about this whole um, travel, vaccination, visiting players can't come, and well, not can't. It made the active choice, understanding the consequence. Yep. Um, but you know, Boston's. I don't know when this this is going to air, but on uh, on the Easter weekend, the story came out that Tanner Houck, who's one of the Red Sox starters, who would have been scheduled to start in Toronto when the Red Sox come in at the end of April is not vaccinated. And so he's not coming. And he said, you know, I believe it's a personal choice and yeah, it's a per- absolutely a personal mm-hmm. choice. Go ahead. But understand what you can and can't do given mm-hmm. the personal choice that you're making. Um, and there, there's, you know, there's been a lot of angles on it that the blue Jays have an advantage because of this, but the truth is it goes both ways. Unvaccinated blue Jays would not be able to play in Toronto. So mm-hmm. uh, they, they're just, they have all made the choice to get vaccinated. Um, so it'll probably be, I'll probably write a column on that. Uh, I think Rosie's going to be in Boston. So she'll write off the Boston series. Um, I've got the podcast every week that I'd spend a lot of time, a lot of my time putting together. Um, And, uh, you know, now that the season's on and there's access, I'm going down and sticking a microphone in people's mouths. And, and, uh, um, and I just talked to Ross Stripling before the Blue Jays left for Boston. who's one of the Jays starting pitchers now with Ken Jin Rio on the shelf. And he used to have his own podcast. 
Okay. Um, and he, he has agreed to do a regular segment with me every week or two. I'm um, okay. trying to find a good name for it. I don't know about like strip down or uh, strip tease. Cause it's only going to be like five minutes or, you know, any, any strip related name is, is suggestion is welcome. Okay. Um, but so yeah, that's, I mean, there's a schedule set. You're writing this day, you're writing this day. And, and, but if something big happens that I feel like I need to weigh in on, then they're more than happy to, to take a column from me. That's tremendous. I want to, maybe this is too technical, but to educate me, I notice every time I read your column in the star in your byline, it always says opinion, like in big bold letters. Well, I don't remember that when I used to read the star in my whole life. No, I think that's a new, that's, but it, it might maybe used to say columnist. Like it's the distinction between a columnist and a reporter, right? A a columnist is is writing opinion. A Mm -hmm. reporter is reporting. So I guess, since I'm a columnist, all the stuff I do is uh, placed under opinion. Unless I'm doing like the three things you need to know from last night's game. Um, I don't know if, if it says opinion when that's there. Yeah. But, but I don't know. But I, I wondered if that was some kind of legalese in the sense of I'm the reader. Like, what does it matter whether it's uh, subjective or objective? Uh, but anyway, I wonder. Could be. Yeah. Could be. I, I, I honestly don't know, but I think it's good. Um, for, well, first of all, I do think we would we would be doing the public a, a greater service as as the media in general if um, if opinion columns and opinion um, segments, I guess, on television uh, or radio or podcasts, if those opinions had to be based on facts, which yeah. a lot of times they're not. Um, but by showing that something is an opinion, it, it at least tells the viewer, okay, you might want to check this. You might want to, might not want to just absolutely believe as gospel, whatever you're reading. Yeah. Because this is someone's opinion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, when we talk about the written word, of course, you're now are on the, 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 vo- the vocal part of your business and is relatively new medium for you. How have you enjoyed podcasting and what's your process for putting those together? It is, it's a relatively new medium for me, sort of, but it's kind of very much like radio, Mm -hmm. which is a relatively, you know, which I've been doing for 35 years almost. Um, And, and, you know, a lot of those Blue Jays talks wound up being podcasts um, or, or at least, the early version of a podcast just packaged up and put online so you can listen to at your own leisure. So like, really I've been podcasting for decades. Yeah. Um, just didn't know it. <laughs> You're ahead of your time. Seriously. But the, the, the process of, of deep left field is generally, um, you know, I will try to make it as, as timely as possible. Um, which is, I think, why I'm going to be on the road with the Jays a lot early in weeks. Like if they're away Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then I'll probably be there with them mm-hmm. um, to, to make sure that deep left field is is as timely as it can be. Not this week because uh, of Passover. I thought it would have been too much uh, to go to Boston. Um, but I think pretty much the rest of the year I'll be, I'll be there in their early week series. Um, and I, I just try to find a, a, 
a relevant story. It can't be like, hey, this is what happened yesterday because it has to live for a week. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually the podcast will drop more often. Um, you know, when they hired me, we were talking about five days a week uh, with one like bigger episode every week. And it's just wound up being the one so far, but it, it will, it'll de- continue to develop and change. But, um, you know, down in spring training, which is a really loose and relaxed atmosphere where it's easy to talk to guys about a bunch of things. I banked a lot of stuff, a lot of these 10 question segments that I, I'm going to try to make a weekly feature. We had um, 10 questions with Jordan Romano last week, 10 questions with Vladdy the week before. I've got like 15 or 20 of them um, that I got during spring training. So that's going to be like a regular little kicker at the end of every show. Um, there will be bigger guests. I'm working on getting Dale Scott now, who was the home plate umpire for the bat flip game. Yep. Uh, he's got a book out that he is um, promoting, so hopefully he'll be amenable to it. Um, he had a couple of dates earlier that he could make that I couldn't, so we're working on that. I'm chasing Getty Lee, who has expressed interest in being on the show. He still um, scores the game, doesn't he? With a, he still a scores the game, yeah, yeah, which is awesome. Me too. Um, so those are kind of like the bigger fish, and those – will generally have to be Zooms, but otherwise during the season, everything is done at the ballpark. Like this week, um, this week, again, was tough because of Passover. I wasn't at the game Friday because of the first Seder. I was only at batting practice Saturday, but I did, uh, I was there Sunday. I did manage to talk to Kevin Smith, who the Blue Jays traded to Oakland in the uh, Matt Chapman deal. Um, and I talked to Tony Kemp, Tony Kemp, who gave me one of the best interviews I've ever had last year um, talking about Marcus Simeon, uh, one of the, um, one of the most memorable games of last season was first week of September blue Jays in Oakland when they really started that pen and push for the mm-hmm. playoff spot. And the Jays were down eight to two in the eighth inning and they tied it. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. hit a grand slam in the bottom of the eighth. Then Oakland went back ahead on the top of the ninth, and Marcus Simeon walked it off with a three-run home in the bottom of the ninth. Tony Kemp was in left field. Okay. And Tony Kemp stayed on the field to watch the Jays' celebration, um, just sort of standing on the infield dirt and watching them. He had been teammates with Simeon the, the, the prior year in, uh, in Oakland. Um, so I wanted to talk to him about why and, Hmm. Um, it was just a phenomenal and like he in a minute in he's talking about it and he shows me his arm and he goes look i got goosebumps just talking about hmm. the moment uh if you want to go back and listen it's the early one of the early september episodes of deep left field but it, that was phenomenal so i had to talk to him again yeah. so i i did um so either smith or kemp will be on this week's show maybe both depending on whether dale scott can do it um, the Ross Stripling segment, I'll have him on Zoom from Boston, and we'll do a 10 questions. Um, and then, you know, the, the Jays come home on Monday, yep. and I'll find, find someone. Yeah, find someone to talk to, something that happened, something uh, something cool, and, uh, and we'll, we'll put another show together. Mike, let's talk about the feed, feedback loop. Now, you've got not only your column, you've got the podcast, you've got your Twitter – 
I imagine social media, especially in conjunction with the digital presence of the Toronto Star, has increased your interaction with readers. Do you enjoy this increased feedback loop with your consumers? I genuinely don't know whether it has increased or not. I would mm. suggest it probably hasn't. Um, I've got a few more followers. I, like, I'm only on Twitter, social media-wise, no Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or, or any of that. Um, I've gotten a few more followers since moving to the star, but it basically feels like it's the same interaction. It's always been, I, I, I felt, I felt like as the Jay's talk host that I had a responsibility to sort of interact with people that I was like the conduit. Um, and I enjoy it for the most part. Um, I'm, I'm a little more liberal with the block button now than I had been, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but I enjoy it. And so I think that's what, that's what keeps people the, you know, the fact that there is back and forth keeps people interacting with me and it's, it's good. It's a way to keep the conversation going. It's a, yeah. it's a way to um, yeah, to be accessible. So I, I, I really do. I really do like it. And I, you know, I ask, every week on the podcast for people to rate and review it. And I read all the reviews and, and um, you know, trying to figure out a way to um, do the, the sort of call in kind of thing yeah. every once in a while. And maybe when the podcast gets expanded, um, I would, I'd be able to sort of have a Jay's talkie ish version yeah. Of it, I know uh, that your producer, the great Toronto Mike, has uh, yes. threatened me with a good time of coming on in June and trying to do a, a live phone-in thing, which would be awesome. Um, so I, I'd love to increase the interaction uh, as well that way, too. Really helps you keep your pulse on what's the zeitgeist, what's going on out there. At least what the louder people are saying. Yeah. Well, true enough, true enough. If you don't mind, Mike, you're not the only Wilner out in the media landscape. Do you want to talk a little about your brother and, and what he's been up to and what he's moving on to? Yeah, so which makes me the only Wilner out in the media landscape now. But my yeah, my brother was uh, uh, the senior film critic for Now Magazine for 14 years. This is Norman. Before that, yeah, Norman. He, he worked at the Star before that. He had a column in the... Uh, a weekly column in the star week magazine and, and stuff in the entertainment section. So it's kind of cool that I'm there now. Uh, he started writing a little newsletter for video flicks at steels and Bathurst in the eighties. Um, and who knew it would, uh, it would grow to this. We both worked together at jumbo video at, uh, on steels between Bathurst and young in 1988. We opened that place. Um, he is now working for the Toronto International Film Festival in the digital programming. It's amazing. It's such a wonderful fit for him. Um, he he's really good at this stuff, and and I mean, he just loves movies so much, um, and and it's it's a perfect place for someone who really loves movies to be. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm I'm thrilled for him, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the kind of stuff that he does, um, and um, you know maybe you'll give him a little nudge to put put a a, a movie that uh, his niece is in uh, briefly 
in into the uh, TIFF lineup, but um, we'll see about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's really incredible the things that he's been able to do. The, the you know the the careers that we've been able to have in media, and now for him moving into like the the uh, I don't know what side it would be the the programming side. Yeah, I guess. programming. Um, it's it's incredible and. While not a Wilner, we have a, a cousin. Our first cousin's name is uh, Mark Perenson, who was a programmer at the Vancouver uh, International Film Festival, who has a, a publishes a magazine called Cinemascope, um, which for the really, really high-minded uh, cinema connoisseur, uh, they will enjoy it. Uh, for me, I... I, I can't read it. The language is much too complicated for me. Um, but, uh, but it's wonderful. Um, so yeah, we are, uh, you know, they were my, my father's parents had five grandchildren and three, three of us wound up working uh, in media, one in sports, two in movies, which, you know, my grandfather owned a movie theater in oh, Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Queen of Bathurst. Okay. The Orpheum, it was called. It's a, I don't know, it closed in the 70s, um, the early 70s, but I don't know the the vintage of your listeners, but people remember the Orpheum uh, on the north side of Queen, just like six or eight storefronts west of Bathurst. That was my grandfather's theater. Well, some great history in this city, and congratulations to Norm on his new gig. Now, Mike, not unlike your 10 questions on the Deep Left Field podcast, here we have Toronto questions from the Toronto Legends podcast. What sports team is winning Toronto's next championship? Oh, wow. I hate making predictions. Um, I think it would really be something if it was the Leafs, and I think they're capable of it. Mm -hmm. Um, My... my, um, caveat to all sports championships is, you know, as much as we like to uh, uh, compose sonnets to the great heroism of and bravery of our sports heroes, yeah. uh, winning a championship in a major professional sport has more to do with luck than anything else. Yeah. Um, winning a best of seven series, a best of three, a best of five, all that luck plays such a huge role. So um the Maple Leafs, I think, are, are good enough to win a, a Stanley Cup this year. The Blue Jays, I think, are good enough to win a World Series this year. The Raptors could surprise some people, but it sure. would be a pretty big surprise if they won another championship. Um, I genuinely cannot say with any confidence which team will be the next to win a championship, but I will say that it will be awesome whenever it happens. Well, we're going to have our hopes. You and I, 55 years, Leafs, go Leafs, go. Mike, are you eager to see John Tory win a third term as mayor of Toronto? Um, it depends on the opposition, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know John not especially well, but I mean, he was on the board at Rogers when I worked there and we interacted every once in a while. He was always very kind to me. Um, he, um, he's done a, a fine job. As the mayor, he's exactly, I think, what the city needed after Rob Ford and that sort of reign of error or whatever you want to call it. Um, 
but there's a, a lot of stuff I think that, that still needs to be done, that still needs to be fixed, that still needs to be uh, improved as far as the conditions of the city, um, as far as, you know, imbalance and inequity and stuff like that. And um, so uh, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Last year, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but Tory said something about the political class versus the rest of the people. And that shows me that he and, and I guess the people on council see themselves as in a different class as mm-hmm. us, you know, regular folk commoners. on the ground. Yeah. Commoners. And I don't like that at all. I, I think that, um, I mean, I'm all over the place on this because I do think that you should have an informed opinion uh, and not just, and, and try to elect people who, who are smarter than you mm-hmm. and who um, know how to get stuff done as opposed to elect the guy you want to have a beer with because he seems yeah. relatable. Um, and it's not just, I'm not just talking about Doug Ford and I'm not just talking about how John Tory does not seem relatable mm-hmm. because he's just some rich old white guy. Um, but I think there has to be a balance and I don't, I don't love the fact that a guy who, ostensibly is supposed to be running the city for the people sees himself as a member of this higher class than, than the, the people he's supposed to be working for. Well, stay tuned this fall because we've got both the mayor of Toronto election and we got the provincial. So we'll see what, what shakes out. I well, actually, the provincials in the summer though, and then late yeah, spring, right? Well, so, they're all, they're all going to be tied in. This is a great year for uh, people that want to see change or get their opinion out about our politics. I had a question, Mike. I'm not making this up. It said, where'd you spend more time in your youth? This is literally the question. Lime Rickies, Pickle Barrel, or Jumbo Video? But we've, we've already, you, you jumped the gun on me there. It sounds like you in spent most time in Lime youth. Rickies. Well, I, I, I mean, this was, it was all, in my youth, I would say Jumbo Video, because I was a teenager still there. Sure. I worked at the other places in my 20s. But I worked at Jumbo Video for a year. Uh, but it was right across the street from my house. So I did spend a lot of time there. I worked at Lime Ricky's for uh, May 94 till I left for spring training in February 95. So less than a year. And Pickle Barrel, I had four different stints at. <laughs> so probably the answer is the Pickle Barrel. A good history to all of them. But I the answer, the true answer may be, you know, the video arcades, uh, video arcades at Young and Dundas. It's true. That's where a lot of misspent youth was. Or That's Studio 81. <laughs> Studio 81, shout out. Yeah. And as we get to the closing here, Coleman's, Panzers, or Center Street Deli? I grew up at Coleman's. Look, I went yeah. to Bialik, uh, which was a Bathurst and Glencairn. Coleman's was a Bathurst and Lawrence. My dad's office was directly across the street from Coleman's. My doctor's office was two floors above Coleman's. So Coleman's, and I miss it so much. Well, it's a subway now, but what can you do? That's the way yeah. things change. Mike, I want to thank you for joining us. Before we close off, please tell us what are your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? Besides everything you do at the Toronto Star, is there anything else Mike Wilner is working on? Um, working on? 
Not specifically. I, I, I'm trying to uh, keep my my irons in the broadcasting fires. I really do miss calling games. Uh, last year, I did a week with uh, or a week and a half with the Israeli Olympic team in their mm. tournament before the the Tokyo Games. And I loved that. It really scratched the itch for me, and it was so great to be around them. And I, I got invited. Um, they were in Hartford as part of that tour at the same time that the New Hampshire Fisher Cats, the Blue Jays AA affiliate, was in Hartford playing the Yard Goats. And so Tyler Murray, the Fisher Cats broadcaster, invited me to do a, a game with him, and I did, and that was spectacular. Uh, I've reached out to and baseball Canada has reached out on my behalf to um, the world softball baseball um, to see if I can maybe help them out broadcasting international baseball, which would be an absolute blast for me. Yep. Um, I got a tweet a couple of winters ago from a broadcaster in Australia inviting me to come down and call Australian baseball league <laughs> games. Um and so that's something that I would love to do one winter. Yeah. Um, those are the things that I'm thinking about beyond while still continuing, you know, expanding the podcast with the star um, and, and continuing to, to write and, and to, I mean, it's, it's been just wonderful working for the Toronto star. I have no plans to, to change that at all. Um, but yeah, those are, those are some things that would be cool to do. Well, that's fabulous. And you got, you're just getting started with this season. So who knows where things go True. for the remainder of our season. It was really great having you. Where can we best follow you and find your work across all your various mediums? Well, you can find me in, in the pages of the Toronto Star. Um, and you can find me more often on, on the star.ca uh, because I, uh, there's stuff that I write that winds up web only, which, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of, a lot of eyes on that. So check that, that out. Um, Deep Left Field Podcast, please subscribe, sign up. Uh, it's I'm biased, but I do think it's the best baseball podcast in the country. It is the only one that really gets you down on the field, mm -hmm. um, in between the lines, talking to the people who, who really make things happen. Um, you can find me there. You can find me on Twitter at Wilnerness. Okay. Um, and uh, oh, that's about it. Bike through the neighborhood like uh, like Toronto Mike does, and, and find me at my house. But I'm not going to tell you where that is. Well, great. Well, you got lots of ways to reach you, Mike. It was great having you. And to the listener, thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Mike Wilner, I am Andrew Applebaum saying, "Let's go Blue Jays and Mahalo."
Politics. I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we, we the perfect, perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous or sexy. Catch us on, on the Dean Blundell Network or on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Because democracy, democracy is, is something, something you do. Hi, I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.